Hello and welcome everyone. It is really good to be with you today. It's good to be with you online and I'm so glad that you are joining us from wherever you are joining us and whenever you're joining us on whatever device you're joining us on. It's great to be with you. Today we are starting off a new series. It's a series that we've called Tough Questions and uh, not surprisingly it's a series in which we aim to answer some tough questions that that we as Christians deal with and have to go through and wrestle through in our journey of faith over the years and for many of you our hope is that this series will prove extremely helpful and as pastors we want to invite you that if you are listening to any of these these sermons, these talks, and you and they they spark deeper questions in you, please come and engage with us. We would love to chat to you. We'd love to talk through some of the things that might be brought up in in you by by these uh, by these questions that we're going through. But if for some of you you've been around church for a little while, and um, and I know these apologetic type series don't exactly get your motor running. And so if that's you, I want to ask for your attention for just a moment. I want to share with you why we've chosen to take five weeks and explore some of these questions. And the first reason is this. And I, and I, like I can't say this strongly enough. I don't believe, generally speaking, that you can argue or logic people into faith in Jesus. We are not doing this series so that you can out-argue people so that they'll become Christians. That's not the point of what we're doing, right? The, the primary reason that we're doing this is because these questions, when they are unanswered, they're like termites in a wooden house. And they eat away and they eat away and they eat away and they destroy the structural integrity of the house from the inside until it eventually collapses. We are doing this series because we want to shore up the foundations of our faith as a church. The world is constantly looking to dismantle the systems of our faith. From the debates on university campuses to the discussion with your skeptical colleague over drinks after work. These questions are asked often and repeated, and when we don't have adequate answers for them, they begin to erode away at the foundation of our faith. And finally, we're doing this because even if your foundations are strong, and I pray and hope that they are, being able to answer these questions will equip you to help someone else who might be struggling with them. Whether that person is your kids whether it's your skeptical colleague at work who's actually kind of genuinely interested and intrigued by your faith, or whether it's a brother or sister in a life group that you're a part of who doesn't know how to handle these questions for themselves. You being able to handle them and knowing how to respond to them will help them in their journey of faith. And we want to equip you to be able to help others. So that's my introduction to why we're doing this series, and I hope that you're going to enjoy it and enjoy being with us and um, through the course of this series, the question we're going to look at today is this. Is the God of the Old Testament really the same as the God of the New Testament? And this question is asked in different forms by different people in different spaces of life. And, and I want to share with you two examples that we found online. The first is by an ex-lead singer of a Christian band. He put this massive long post up on Instagram, right? He's the son of a pastor. He married the daughter of another pastor and, and they had pastoral children and he's, he's fallen away from the faith after many years of being an influential Christian leader. And he writes this Instagram post and in it he says, why does God seem so peed off? 
in most of the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden, he's this loving father in the New Testament. Why does he say, do not kill, but then turn around and instruct Israel to kill men, women, and children to take the promised land? What's up with that? Do you think you would be able to help him answer that question? Here's a second, slightly longer quote that's formulated by a recent believer in the UK. His questions are taken from a letter that he wrote to Dr. William Lane Craig, who is an excellent Christian thinker and philosopher. This, this guy hasn't lost his faith, but he's disturbed by the disparity that he perceives between the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament. He says this. He says, I recently decided to read the Bible in a one-year plan on an app. And it took me to the books of Moses and Joshua. And I quickly found that this God is not the same as Jesus. I'm truly struggling with this God. There are many passages that don't seem to make sense, regardless of how we may argue the case for God having morally sufficient reasons for not allowing things to be done, but to actually demand them. There are a couple of passages that stand out, and he cites one. In Numbers chapter 15, Now while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath. Those who, had get, those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And so the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. This reason, he says, stands out because Jesus teaches us something completely in opposition in the New Testament than what we're told he demanded in the Old. And then he cites a passage from Mark. He says, And it happened that as he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. From Mark chapter 2. Why he asked the stark difference for, his, for Jesus and his disciples and that man in the forest. I can't help but feel so sorry for that man who was picking up wood. Where was God's mercy? Where did God show his forgiveness and his kindness and his love as an eternally higher moral being? I'm seriously torn. I'm just struggling to see how the Old Testament God could be the same as the same God as Jesus, and it's actually driving me away from Jesus. I'm beginning to resent the character of this God. How many of us have felt like that as we've read some of those stories? I'm sure these questions echo in the hearts of some of you who are listening today. You've been wrestling with them. You've asked them before. How do we answer them? Can we resolve these apparent tensions? I really believe that we can. I really believe that we can. I believe in order to do that, we need to resolve two key issues. Firstly, we need to examine what we perceive as the difference in the revealed character of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right? We need to examine the perceived difference in God's revealed character in those two Testaments. And then secondly, we need to examine our objection to the moral actions of God. Sometimes we take issue with the things God has done. We need to look at that. So let's turn to the first issue. All right, let's start with the first problem, the perceived difference in the revealed character of God between the Old and New Testament. 
The issue we have here is our perception of the character of God. It's, it can seem to us as though who God is in his very essence and nature doesn't seem to be congruent between the Old and New Testaments. This perception can come about, I think, when one or both of two things exist. Either our knowledge of both the Old and all the New Testament is deficient, or, and, we have an inadequate understanding of how judgment works between the Old and New Testament. So let's examine both of those components. And it's my belief that as we, as we look at those two things, you'll be able to agree that God reveals himself consistently in his character across those two Testaments. So what does scripture really say about God? See, the distortion in our view of God between Testaments is almost always that God in the Old Testament is too violent, judgmental, and harsh, whereas the Jesus of the New Testament is kind, loving, and gentle. Almost no one, and I think I'm being generous to qualify this claim with the word almost, but almost no one thinks of Jesus as being too harsh and violent, and the God of the Old Testament as being too loving, kind, and gentle. And so to, in order to disprove what I believe is a false dichotomy, we're going to look at the evidence that establishes God's loving kindness and grace in the Old Testament and the harshness and judgment of God in the New Testament. Although if we had enough time, we could easily examine um, both in both Testaments and we could see that. So firstly, let's ask the question, is it true that God is devoid or even short of grace, love and gentleness in the Old Testament? Right? Is that a fair claim? Let's examine a couple of stories, three stories. The first one comes from Exodus chapter 34 verses 5 to 7. And here God appears to Moses and it says this, it says, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with an unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. This is a moment of self-revelation. It's God's revelation of his own character. It's his declaration of who he is. And he claims, he says, I am the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger. I am filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. That's who I claim to be. Does that bear itself out as we read the Old Testament? That's our question. I'll look in just a couple of places to establish this because we, we could really take a long time to do this. But you'll, you'll tune out if I do that. So we'll try and do it in a shorter time. Right? Let's look at the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system that God establishes, if you read through the book of Leviticus, you'll see there's a whole collection of laws that are given to the Israelite people on sacrifices that they have to offer for various reasons. What can we learn from these sacrificial laws? How did these sacrifices atone for sin? How did they make amends for the things the people of God had done? I want you, as we ask those questions, to consider these three scriptures. All right, very briefly. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he does in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Psalm 51, 
verses 16 and 17. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Hosea 6.6 I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want your burnt offerings. See, friends, what I want you to notice from these three passages of Scripture is that God doesn't ask for sacrifices because he takes pleasure in the death of animals. The sacrificial system was not a way for the Israelite people to display their righteousness for everyone to see, to prove their godliness by their offerings that they gave to the Lord. What God desired of them was actually deep and genuine in their hearts. He desired godliness. He desired love and obedience and repentant, humble hearts, which over and over and over again, they failed to display. And so God creates a way where he, the almighty, incomparable, holy God, could presence himself amongst a sinful people. And let me ask you this. Do you imagine, do you imagine that for a moment, one goat offered on the day of atonement could ever possibly pay back the cumulative sin of a million people over a year? That's what happened on the Day of Atonement. Do you think that goat could possibly cover the cumulative sin of a million people? The sacrificial system was a perpetual, continual reminder of the grace and mercy of God toward his people. Every year that his holiness did not consume them for their sin is a display of his mercy, his kindness, and his grace. The fact that there is this system where they can make offerings as a show of their love for God. And that they will be forgiven for the their numerous sins that they've committed. is a show of God's mercy, his kindness, and his grace toward them. Let's look at one more example that hits a little closer to home. In Ezekiel chapter 36, we find this beautiful promise of the new covenant. Here's what the Lord says. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep all my laws. And you will live in the land that I gave to your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. What a blessing. What a promise. Four verses later. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O people of Israel. Yo, that just comes out of left field. This promise to Israel is not because they are such a worthy and deserving people. It's in despite of their sin. And if you read the book of Ezekiel, you'll see how God calls out the heinousness of their sin explicitly and this beautiful new covenant that we get to enjoy fully today is not given because it was ever deserved but it's an undeserved gift from a gracious and loving God that just chose to lavish his loving kindness on his people there's so much more we could say 
like God's 400 years of long suffering with faithless Israel under the reign of her kings. Because the Old Testament is just full of examples of the grace, the mercy and the kindness of God. But this will have to be sufficient for you for now. Go look if you want to find more. Go read and you'll just see the faithfulness, the kindness and the grace of God. God in the Old Testament is not just an angry, judgmental and violent God. He is also the God of compassion and mercy. He is the God who is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. He is both of those things, just as we'll see now in the New Testament. So here's the second half of our question. Is it true that God is devoid or even short of judgment, anger and violence in the New Testament? Again, let's consider a couple of stories to make this point. The first story I've called Jesus and the whip, right? It's in John chapter 2. You remember that time Jesus walked into the temple, was so outraged by what he saw that he literally wove a whip together on the spot and filled with righteous anger, he went into the temple courts and he flipped over tables and he beat people with a whip. Doesn't seem very, turn the other cheek. Hey, okay, let's crank it up a notch, right? Maybe that wasn't serious enough for us. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Acts chapter 5, very beginning. Ananias and Sapphira gave some money to the church. What a wonderful couple. Praise the Lord for Ananias and Sapphira. Oh wait, they died. Oh wait, they died because they lied about how much they gave. And so God himself struck them down from heaven and they died. Boom. They were carried out and buried in the ground. It's not very gentle. Not very gracious, merciful, kind. Pretty serious. Let's take another step further. Let's crank it up another notch. Revelation chapter 19. It's a prophecy about Jesus. A picture of Jesus. John says this. He says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe that has been dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is a story about the judgment that's to come. It's a story about Jesus. He is the one who is the word of God. No one else is the word of God. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He is the word of God. He's the same word that John speaks about in the beginning of his gospel who came with grace and truth, except now he comes with a sword and he comes on a horse in a robe dipped in blood and he comes to exact judgment on the earth. This Jesus treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Can you feel the intensity in those words? To say that the God of the New Testament is devoid or short of anger, judgment and violence is to fail to read the New Testament properly. Just as in the Old Testament, Jesus and God, they're the same. They're both God. 
That's who God is. They're both. They are loving, kind, gracious, and merciful, and they are full of judgment and wrath towards sin. And this is never more perfectly seen, friends, than in the crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus is the perfect summation of the character of God. Now say that again. The crucifixion of Jesus is the perfect summation of the character of God. It is the undiluted wrath of God Almighty, the one true and holy God, poured out on a willing son in order to demonstrate the incomparably great love, grace, and kindness that that same God has towards us, his undeserving children. To say that God reveals himself differently in the Old and New Testaments is to fail to read both the Old and New Testaments for the fullness of what they contain. It's a false dichotomy. Let's move to the second component of this primary issue. The way judgment changes between the Old and New Testaments. Because whilst, whilst we might agree, okay, God is the same, reveals himself both in the same way, it's helpful for us to identify how judgment changes between the two Testaments. Because God acts in judgment in both the Old and the New Testament. But he does so in different ways and he does so in different times. And I want to just unpack this a little bit for us to help us grasp this. Because this can be very helpful. The Old Testament contains 39 books, and it spans a time frame of approximately 3,000 years. The New Testament has 27 books, and it spans a time frame of about 60 years. All of the New Testament could fit into the lifetime of David. And yet the Old Testament is so much bigger and so much longer than that. You have the opportunity in the Old Testament to see the long suffering of God and then his eventual coming down in judgment. You don't get to see that in the New Testament. And there's a development in the way in which God applies his judgment between the Old and the New Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, judgment was typically something that was temporal. In other words, it happened within the lifetime of the people who deserved it. Like what happened during the time of the judges, the people would sin and then Because of their sin, God would send an enemy and they would get taken out. There was punishment that was tied to the the moment of the crime. Or within a relative amount of time thereafter. And we can think about how God waited during the, the reign of the kings until eventually Israel was consumed, until eventually Judah was exiled. Right, or in the flood, where God allowed the unrighteousness of man to build up and to build up and to build up over years and over centuries, and eventually God acted. The judgment in the Old Testament was typically temporal. It happened within the space of time. It was also temporal in the sense that it was a first judgment. Judgment was leveled against your earthly existence, either resulting in some form of punishment, like Cain, who received the mark of Cain and was cast out, or as we said earlier, Judah was exiled into the nation of Babylon, right? or it ended in death, like the northern tribes were destroyed, like King Saul died because of his unfaithfulness to God. Whereas in the New Testament... Sin is still deserving of punishment, but judgment largely gets held over. Sin in the New Testament is generally speaking accounted for on an eternal rather than temporal scale. 
And this can sometimes give us the impression that we see, as we're reading, we see less judgment, less violence, less anger in the 60 years of the New Testament that we have. But that's actually the wrong impression. Judgment doesn't cease to feature, but rather it gets meted out primarily in two decisive moments. It gets meted out in the crucifixion, and it gets meted out in the second coming and judgment of Jesus. See, in the crucifixion, Jesus bore the wrath of God in punishment against sin, meted out once and for all in temporal punishments. But in the second coming and the final judgment, all of those who have not yet been held accountable for their sin will face the full and the final wrath of God. And all that we don't see in the 60 years of the New Testament will get expressed fully and finally in that moment. And that hasn't happened yet. And because these two events so largely encompass the majority of the outworked judgments of God in the New Testament, it's tempting to think that God himself is different. But he's not. He just chooses to act on his judgment in a different time and a different way. Okay, so let's sum up issue number one. Right. When we take these two factors together, I believe they strongly refute the contention that God is different in his character between the Old and New Testaments. We have seen in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is both full of love and the holiness that expresses itself in judgment. And we have seen that just because God chooses to outwork that judgment differently doesn't mean that he is a different God. However, however, Even having resolved these two factors, we can still be left feeling somewhat unsatisfied with the results. We can still sometimes look at the things we see God doing in the Old Testament and we battle to reconcile that with a God who claims to be full of love. So what do we do about that? That's our second issue. But before we get into that, we've been going for 25 minutes. I've been going for 25 minutes. Maybe pause the video here, go get a cup of coffee, stretch your legs, Get a breath of fresh air and hop back in. We won't be as long in the second part, right? But maybe just an opportunity to stretch your legs will be very helpful. Okay, welcome back. Um, And for those of you who never left, great to have you here, right? Here's our our second issue. We, We have an objection to the moral actions of God. There are, there are certain accounts in the Old Testament in particular where it seems that God either endorses or requires or carries out himself actions that we find not only distasteful, but sometimes morally reprehensible. Can we say that, right? We could just look at what God is doing and we're like, yes, that's like, that's hectic. And if God is doing them both in the Old and the New Testament, as we kind of established, like, doesn't that shake my faith even more? You know, some of these accounts might be the, the global flood that happens in Genesis chapter 6. Might be the systemic destruction of the Canaanites, men, women, children, and cattle as Israel enters the promised land. It might be the use of capital punishment for what we see as, as insignificant misdemeanors like hitting your parents or when Achan steals something from the city of Jericho. And he and his whole family die. Or Uzzah, when he tries to stop the ark falling out of the cart and he touches it and God strikes him down. Like that just, sometimes it just seems difficult. And so when we deal with this objection, it requires two things for us. It first requires us to examine our own hearts. We need to look at what's going on here. And then we need to make sure that we've got the right information. And that that we're wrestling with the right information. 
right? So let's start, let's examine our hearts first. Because to actually say the sentence, I have a moral objection to the actions of God, should give us pause. That should be concerning to us. Because in making that statement, we've actually placed ourselves above God in judgment. Right? We've somehow assumed that our moral judgment is superior to God's. And not only are we better able to distinguish between right and wrong than he is, but we are so much better that we, we believe we're able to call him to account. Like, do we ever realize that our hearts could become so twisted? Can we, can we conceptualize the depth of the blasphemy and the arrogance that we've entered into when we make this claim? God calls us out. He calls it out of his people in Isaiah 45. He says, what sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it saying, hey, stop what you're doing? Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? How terrible would it be, the Lord says, if a newborn baby said to its father, why am I born? Or if it said to its mother, why did you make me this way? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and your creator. Do you question what I do for my children? Do you give me orders about the work of my hands? I am the one who made the earth and created people to live in it. With my hands, I stretched out the heavens. All the stars are at my command. Who are you to question me? When we begin to think this way, friends, we need to stop and we need to recognize that in the hubris of our thinking, we have forgotten about the depths of our depravity. Every biblical author that has encountered the presence of God Almighty has been humbled. God, Moses asked to see God's face and God said, like, like, we cannot do it, Moses, for the sake of your own life. I will hide you from me. I will pass by. You can look at my back. But if you saw my face, you would die. Job, after suffering this incredible injustice, proclaims. He said, he said, you asked, who is it that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? I confess, Lord, it is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. I take back everything I said. And I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Isaiah got a chance to see the Lord in a vision. And the moment he saw him, he cried out, Woe is me, I am doomed, for I am a sinful man, and I have filthy lips, and I live amongst the people with filthy lips. The Apostle John, the Lord's best human friend, when he saw the risen Jesus in a vision, fell at his feet as though dead. Friends, God's holiness is all-encompassing. And when we share our doubts with friends, when we stoke this pride in ourselves, in the safety of this physical world, we create for ourselves a false sense of security in our questioning. Because one day we're going to have to share those thoughts before God Almighty, whose very presence will humble us to the uttermost, and all of our clever reasonings will be without worth or use. When we find ourselves questioning God's moral actions, we need to stop and begin by questioning our own hearts. And, and I'm not saying, guys, please hear me here. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask questions. Not at all. Questions are good. Love questions. But for our own sakes, let's seek to understand God. 
not to judge him. Secondly then, right, in understanding our objections to God's moral actions, we need, to, we need to, once we've checked our hearts, there are some helpful principles that we can use to navigate some of those actions of God that seem a little incongruous to us. And I'm going to give us just three. I'm going to give them to us reasonably quickly. And I think they're helpful. Here's the first one. Don't assume that your first blush was correct. Don't assume your first blush was correct. When we read scripture, we often assume that our gut instinct about what scripture says means that must be correct. And this can be very unhelpful. Let's take, for instance, the destruction of the Canaanites in the promised land. Our first blush, it seems impossible for this to be a justifiable act. Like how could God call for, order the destruction of an entire people group? But what's going on underneath this belief in our hearts is the assumption that the Canaanites are unworthy of this punishment. That this punishment is overly harsh. That this punishment is not necessary. Perhaps they're just a normal people, an innocent people living in their own land. But if you read more of the scripture, you find that scripture says over and over again that God was removing them because of the depth of their wickedness. Because of their sin, cried out to him and called for judgment. Deuteronomy 5, 9 verse 5, for one example, the Lord says, It's not because of your righteousness or your uprightness of heart that you are going to possess this land that I'm giving to you. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. It's because of their wickedness. If you sometimes find yourself struggling with some of the actions God takes, take some time to read around and you might discover that there are reasons for them. And you might share those with us in scripture. Second principle. Let's remember that all of us deserve only God's justice and none of us deserve God's mercy. We only deserve God's justice. None of us deserve his mercy. Friends, we live in an age where humanism dominates and our world is obsessed with protecting everybody's rights and we have to bend over backwards to be politically correct and not to offend anyone. But before God, we have no rights. And before God, we have no entitlements. We cannot stand before God and make a claim of him and say, hey, Lord, you owe me. We have no right to his mercy. The only right we have is to his justice. Every day that God doesn't simply strike us down for our sinfulness is a display of his unearned and undeserving mercy. And so when God does choose to act and to meet out his holiness in judgment, we cannot morally object. We have no grounds to stand on because we are all God's creation. We are property to his divine presence and we exist only because of his continued mercy towards us. Second principle, we deserve his justice, not his mercy. Thirdly, lastly, God is not arbitrary and his actions always have divine purpose behind them. Our God doesn't snuff out life on a whim because he had a bad day and he's like, I'm going to kill them Canaanites today. That's not how God works. In fact, he has declared throughout scripture that he has a desire for all people to be saved. Old Testament, New Testament, if you read through it, it's there. God desires for people to come to a saving knowledge of him. He desires for them to turn to him in repentance and receive life from him. That's his heart. 
And so when he chooses to act in judgment against the lives of people, we can be confident that that decision is serving his divine will and the collective good of humanity. Because that's who our God is. Let's take God's command to Israel not to marry foreigners as an example. Gave God gave that command because he knew that foreigners would lead his people astray. And his desire was for his people to be a light of salvation to all nations, for them to be wholly and fully faithful to him, but that foreigners would lead them astray. And so when Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, decided to disregard that command, he led the whole nation of Israel into idol worship. And away from the living God. And they couldn't be the light to the world. Because they couldn't remember who God was. Because their leader had married a bunch of foreign women. And followed after their gods. So let's sum up. Right. Our second issue. Whereas we consider the moral objections that we sometimes have to God's actions. We have to see firstly that we can never place ourselves in that position of judgment over God. And that when seeking to understand him, we need to dig deep into the scriptures and test if the assumptions that we have and the presuppositions that we had as we read the text in the first place were really correct. We need to remember that we are only deserving of his justice. And whenever we get his mercy, it's grace. And finally, we need to remember that God always acts with divine purpose which we may or may not always understand. Friends, as we draw this to a close, I believe that it can be fairly said that God is the same, no matter which testament you read about him in. He has not changed and he never will. And the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. His character is consistent across them both. And it's revealed consistently across them both. And I hope for those of you who genuinely wrestled with this question, you have found that your faith has been built and your foundation has been strengthened. And because God is the same, your your understanding of his holiness and his wrath should increase your appreciation of his love and his grace and his mercy. Because if he wasn't going to be a God that exercised judgment, we wouldn't need his grace. And for those of you who had had this question resolved in your heart, I hope that you feel better equipped after having watched this to engage others and to help others find the same peace and comfort that you have found in our Savior. Friends, it's been great to be with you today and I trust that the Lord has ministered into your hearts. And I just want to say if you... um, we want to do some further reading. I've put two helpful links in the description below. Um, you'd, you'd really benefit from reading them if this is something that interests you. Uh, please feel free to do that. But I trust that God will take you into the week that is ahead of you. May he fill you with his spirit. May he anoint you with strength to endure whatever it is that comes against you this week. May you triumph over it. May you walk in the fullness of God's power. And may you carry and extend his kingdom in all the places that you go. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen. Bless you and bye-bye.